Throughout this month, we have been highlighting our 41-word mission statement, which can be found in your bulletin and on the screens behind me. First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ-centered faith family that exists to make disciples for a global impact by enjoying God through worship and prayer, by equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions and evangelism. Thus far, we've laid the foundation as we have tried to take phrase by phrase, line by line of that statement. We have already defined what it means to be a Christ-centered faith family. We have defined what it is to make disciples for a global impact, for we receive the word and we put it into practice. Today, I want us to focus our attention on that phrase, enjoying God through worship and prayer. Do you know that you were created to enjoy God? The reason you were made was to enjoy God. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? The answer is given, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is with that thought in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and once again turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. I want to read in your hearing verses 21 to 28. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 15, I'll begin at verse 21. I'll conclude at verse 28. And today I want to talk to you about enjoying God. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. At first glance, you might think that this is a miraculous story. And certainly, there is a miracle in the story. But more fundamentally, this is a story about great faith. And even beyond that, this is a story about how to enjoy God. I want to contend this morning that in order to enjoy God, you must have great faith in God. Let me say that again. That in order to enjoy God, you must have great faith in God. It is Matthew who tells us that Jesus and the disciples went to Tyre and Sidon. These two coastal cities nestled along the Mediterranean coast were significant. This is not the first time, it's not the last time, but it is an important time when Jesus stepped out of the covenant people of Israel, traveled beyond the national boundaries of Israel, 
and went to a Gentile region. To say that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon is to say that he intentionally went outside of Judaism, went into an area that was thoroughly known as a Gentile territory, and there Jesus went to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. The question must be asked, why did Jesus travel outside the covenant people of Israel? Why did he go beyond the boundary of the nation? Why did he go to these coastal towns? What Matthew implies, Mark seems to spell out more clearly. Mark tells the very same story. And in Mark's version, he says that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, went into a house in the hopes that no one would know he was there. In other words, Jesus went on a retreat. Jesus needed to unplug. Jesus went to the coastal town. The weather must have been beautiful. The climate was adorable. I mean, the scenery was spectacular. It was there in Tyre and Sidon where Jesus and the disciples left. They went to unplug from the ministry of Galilee. They went because everything surrounding Jesus and Israel was full of hostility and hatred and animosity. I mean, the temperature was being raised and Jesus and the disciples just needed to retreat. You know the value of a retreat, don't you? You know the benefit of going on a vacation, of going on a spiritual pilgrimage, of getting unplugged, going out from the normal hustle and bustle of life. You know the benefit of a retreat. So Jesus and the disciples, they went to retreat. Mark says they went to a house and Jesus was just hoping that no one in that area would know that he was there. But Matthew tells us that a woman wrecked the retreat. She barged right in. She's an anonymous woman. We're not even given her name. Matthew does vilify this woman by calling her a Canaanite. He says that a Canaanite woman came to the house where Jesus was staying with the disciples. Now, obviously, We don't have a plethora of Jewish individuals in the crowd today because if you were a Jewish crowd like Matthew's predominantly Jewish crowd of his audience, when they read the words that a Canaanite woman entered the house, there would have been a collective gasp to go across the crowd. For Matthew to say that a Canaanite woman was there is to say that she represents the archenemy of Israel. From the 39 books of the Old Testament, it is God's people who would go up and fight the Canaanites. There were many Israelites who put many Canaanites to death by the sword in the days of antiquity. Now, obviously, not all the Canaanites were killed. This woman is a living descendant. And so she's there, and she represents everything that's wrong with the world in the eyes of Israel. She represents the enemy of God. She is a Canaanite woman. The first thought that would come across Matthew's audience would have been something like this. Why is she going to Jesus? And the second thought would have been, surely Jesus is not going to give her the time of day. This woman is the polar opposite of Jesus. For starters, she's a woman. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a Jew, she is a Gentile. Jesus represents the covenant people of God. This woman stands outside, well outside of the covenant people of God. 
Why is this Canaanite woman wrecking the retreat of Jesus? Now, in Mark's version of the story, he does not call her a Canaanite woman. He calls her a Syrophoenician woman. Mark's audience is much more Gentile than Matthew's audience. So Mark just says a Syrophoenician woman came in. Now, to call her a Syrophoenician woman just specifically tells you where she's from. She's from Syria and Phoenicia. Some people have said, um, here's a great example of where you cannot trust the Bible. In one gospel story, Matthew says she's Canaanite. In another gospel story, the very same uh, story is told by a different gospel writer. He calls her a Syrophoenician woman. They both can't be right. I mean, either she's Canaanite or Syrophoenician. So who's right? Who's wrong? One of them has to be wrong. And the way I respond to that is by asking you a question. Are you an Alabamian or an American? And the answer is, you're both. I mean, generally... You're an American. More specifically, you are a resident of Alabama. So in the description of this anonymous woman, generally, she's a Canaanite. More specifically, regarding her residence, she is a Syrophoenician woman, a woman from Syria and Phoenicia. She's right around Tyre and Sidon. This is where she's from. So both Mark and Matthew are right. Because you can trust the Bible. The Bible is the infallible word of God. The Bible does not have any contradictions in it. For you to think there's a contradiction might just mean that you don't fully understand uh, what the story is insinuating or why Matthew would call her a Canaanite and Mark would call her a Syrophoenician woman. Regardless, this woman wrecks the retreat. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has gone outside of the nation of Israel. In fact, it's not the first time he's gone to the area of Syria. But every place Jesus went, he was a celebrity. Now, this is, I know it's so old-fashioned and antiquated and outdated, but this is in the days of communication by word of mouth. This is before television. This is before the internet. This is before social media. But regardless of wherever Jesus went, people began to talk to other people who would talk to other people who would tell other people, hey, Jesus is in our neck of the woods. The miracle-working rabbi from Galilee, he's now in our town. And apparently, that's exactly what happened. When Jesus and the boys, when they went to Tyre and Sidon, somebody saw them. And somebody said, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus came all the way outside of the nation of Israel, and he's now in our area of Tyre and Sidon. This woman heard the news. And so this woman barged in. If she's not supposed to be there, nobody told her. She doesn't know she's not supposed to be there. But this woman, I contend to you this morning, is a woman who just knows that she needs God, and she needs help from God, and she longs to enjoy God. First and foremost, to enjoy God is to imply that a person who enjoys God declares great faith that is Christ-centered. 
A person who enjoys God declares great faith that is Christ-centered. That's exactly what this woman does. She barges in the front door. She accurately identifies Jesus with proper theological terminology. And she asks him a request that is something well within his sphere of influence and ability. She says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now that's a mouthful. But everything she says is exactly right. She says, Lord, more than just a polite way of saying, sir. She's saying, Lord, there is something uniquely different about you, Jesus. Lord, you are Lord with the lineage. You're of the house and line of David. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm not making a request just for myself, but it's for my precious daughter. My daughter is demon-possessed, and I need help. And I believe that you can fix it. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. When you think about what this woman says, it is, it is really a, a declaration of great faith, which is Christ-centered. Apparently, she not only um, heard the stories of Jesus, but she believed the stories about Jesus. And one step further, she acted upon the stories of Jesus. She probably heard how Jesus unstopped deaf ears, opened up blind eyes, fed the multitude with a couple of fish and, and a couple of sardines, a couple of sardines and a couple of, of crackers. I mean, she probably heard how Jesus enabled the dead to come back to life. And maybe she heard the story how Jesus brought sanity to the lunatic named Legion. And she thought to herself, listen, I've heard these stories. I believe these stories. Now I'm acting upon these stories. I think Jesus can fix my problem. She understood that there was no problem, predicament, or prognosis that was outside the jurisdiction of Jesus. There, there was no crisis. There was no circumstance. There was no catastrophe that was beyond his control. There was no situation, no sickness, no setback that was not within the realm of the sovereign savior. She knew Jesus could handle it. This woman barged in and she placed all of her faith squarely upon Jesus. I'm sure she'd probably exhausted all of her options. She had probably gone to all of her Canaanite gods and goddesses and they were of no help. She had gone to the mute, deaf, dumb idols of stone and wood and, and they were not able to help either. And so she tried everything possible and now she's at the end of her rope and she says, I just know that Jesus can fix it. I can't believe he's this close to me. I don't have the means to travel to Israel. I can't believe that he came from Israel all the way here. He didn't just get out of town. He got out of country. He got out of country and came to where I live and so I cannot let this opportunity pass by. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. I contend this morning that this woman uh, placed her faith squarely upon Jesus and because in order to enjoy God, it is declared through great faith that is Christ-centered. I think that the only true faith is Christ-centered faith. I know that everybody doesn't agree with that. Not everybody in this culture agrees with that. There are a lot of people who consider themselves a person of faith, 
when you talk to them, it's more about faith in themselves or faith in the human spirit or faith in a Near Eastern mysticism or some faith in another world religion. Uh, but, but the faith of the Bible, the faith of the Bible is the faith not only in God, but the Trinitarian God. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why I say the only real faith is Christ-centered faith. The only real faith of the Bible is Christ-centered faith. Christ-centered as it, as it personifies God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And this woman has it, man. She's got faith. And she places that faith, declares that faith squarely upon Jesus. Now, how does he respond? The next line of the text says, he did not answer her a word. What? Did 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 y'all see that? He did not answer her a word. He gave her a Christological cold shoulder. It's not that he didn't hear her request. It's not that he didn't see her. She's right in front of him. He can clearly hear what she's saying. He understands what she's speaking. And he just looks right past her. He doesn't answer her a word. He gives her the cold shoulder. He says nothing. What would that do to your faith? How would you respond? If you bore your soul to Christ... And you gave him your request in prayer, in worship, in adoration. And you gave it to him and you knew that he heard you and he did not answer you a word. He didn't say anything to you. I bet that more than a few of us would storm out of that house in anger and arrogance. And we would say, well, if that's how he's going to handle my request, my precious heart-bearing, uh, uh, soul-searching uh, request of him, if he's not even going to answer me a word, I don't even think I'm ever going to speak to him again. I don't care if he ever comes back to Tyre and Sidon. I will never be in his crowd again. If this is how he's going to treat me in my moment of need, then I'm never going to say anything else to him. How many of you would respond by storming out in anger and arrogance? And by default, showing our ignorance. Yet this woman, apparently she doesn't leave. I mean, Jesus gave her a Christological cold shoulder, but she doesn't leave. Instead, she goes to his disciples. That makes a lot of sense. She goes to Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the boys, and she thinks to herself that maybe if I can grab their attention, then maybe they can speak to the master on my behalf, and then Jesus will answer my request. So she pursues Peter and James and John and all the other disciples. It's not that this woman will not take no for an answer. It's that this woman won't leave without an answer. There's a big difference. It's not that she's just throwing a temper tantrum. It's not that she just won't take no for an answer, that Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. No, Jesus didn't say no. He didn't say yes. He didn't say anything. He did not answer her a word. He didn't give her a word. And so it's not that, that she got a negative response and she's upset about it, so now she's going an end around game and trying to get the disciples to do her dirty work. No, it's not that she doesn't take no for an answer. She's just not going to leave until she gets an answer. She's kind of similar to how Nathan was when he was about four years of age. 
Nathan uh, had an uncanny ability uh, to ask you for something until you answered him. He would not be ignored. Hey, Daddy. 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 And on more than one occasion, Jane Ellen would say, will you just please answer him? Because if you don't answer him, he's going to keep on doing that. And there were times when I put it to the test. How long will this four or five-year-old just stand there and say, hey, daddy, hey, daddy, hey, daddy. And it's a very long time, I might add. He will go on and on and on because he's very talkative. And so Nathan would be there. It's not that he was being rude. It's not that he would not take no for an answer. He was just waiting for somebody to answer him. That's the woman of this story. It's not that... She won't take no for an answer. She's going to and through the disciples in the hopes of getting an answer. So the disciples eventually, they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you got to do something about this woman. I mean, she keeps crying out after us. Enjoying God is declared through great faith that is Christ-centered. But secondly, enjoying God is demonstrated through great faith that is persistent in its plea. This woman is very persistent. In fact, the word crying out is present tense. It implies a continuous action. Not just once, but a continuous action. Not only is it continuous and persistent, but it is passionate. For the word crying out literally means screaming. This woman is praying with everything she's got. This woman is requesting this favor with everything that she has. She is screaming at the top of her lungs. Have you ever been in that moment when you've had a request of God? And and when you go to him in prayer, it's not that you are prim and proper and quiet. You just go and you just bear your soul before the Lord and you just scream and you cry in his presence. Have you ever prayed like that? It reveals the passion of your heart. This is this woman. I mean, why is she so passionate? This is her daughter that we're talking about. It's her precious child. She knows Jesus has the power, the capacity, the ability to answer her and to do what she's requesting. Jesus has given her the Christological cold shoulder. So now she's not going to leave until she gets an answer. So she goes to and through to the disciples. The disciples eventually go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, she keeps crying out after. You got to do something about this woman. And then Jesus responds to the disciples in earshot of this woman. And Jesus says, and I quote, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? Y'all didn't, y'all didn't get it. Jesus, Jesus told her she's not Jewish enough. He said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus, Jesus just threw out a racial slur. Listen, in our culture, apparently, the worst sin is racism, right? I mean, in our culture today, the worst sin is racism. And Jesus just pulls out the race card. He says, this woman ain't Jewish enough. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Oh, snap. 
I mean, did you get what he just said? Jesus just told her she wasn't Jewish enough. <laughs> You're not one of us. You're not like me. You're not part of the covenant people of God. I don't care about you. I came from the lost sheep of Israel. Whoa. Now listen, if it doesn't sound like Jesus for him to give a Christological cold shoulder, then it certainly doesn't sound like Jesus for him to pull the race card, give a racial slur, and say you're not Jewish enough. Jesus, what are you doing? What, what are you driving at? In Mark's story, in Matthew's story, in their retelling of the Gospels, previous to this story in both accounts, they give us examples of when Jesus went outside of Israel, even went to Syria, which is the same general area. And Jesus, in those stories, was the compassionate Savior. For they would bring to him all the sick, and Jesus would heal them. Because Jesus didn't care who you were if you had an infirmity, which is the effect of sinfulness. He came to conquer sin. He came to give compassion. He came to give salvation to the Jew and the Gentile. And on numerous occasions, we hear that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the nations. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If there's anybody who's not racist, it's God. God is not racist. Jesus is not racist. Yet in this moment, it appears as if Jesus says, she's not Jewish enough. He pulls out the race card and says, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, what does he really mean by this? I think, once again, he's talking to the disciples and I think he's reminding them that the mission's not over. We came out of Israel, but we're not done with Israel. My job is not completed. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. But in John's gospel, he will tell us that the sheep of my fold are not only of this fold, but of other folds, that there, there are Gentiles that will be in the kingdom. So, so clearly, Jesus is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant where the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless the world through you. Through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the offspring or the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus is the one who will redeem the world through the Jews into the Gentiles. So I think he's talking to the disciples. And I think he's reminding them the mission isn't over. We still have to go back to Israel. But I think Jesus is also doing something else. In the previous chapter, uh, Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. Out of all the miraculous stories of Jesus, outside the resurrection of our Lord, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle story recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the gospel writers say this story is paramount in its importance and priority, the feeding of the multitude. And so just in the previous chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus had fed the 5,000. Do you remember what happened the day after he fed the 5,000? The crowds came back to him wanting more. And Jesus said the only reason you're coming 
It's because I filled your stomachs. And now you want more food. I came not to just give you physical bread. I came to give you spiritual bread. You feast on me by faith and you'll be satisfied both now and forevermore. I personally believe that Jesus had it up to here with people at that time of his ministry who were clamoring after him only to get something from him. And I think that Jesus is proving to this woman and proving to his disciples that this woman's faith is legit. Because um, Jesus, Jesus has had it up to here with people that are coming after him just to get something from him. He wants to make sure that this woman knows he's not a free meal ticket. He's not a government handout. He's not an entitlement program. He's not even a godly handout. No, he, he's not a program of society. He's not something that you go to just to get something from. He is Christ. It does beg the question, though. Why do you follow Jesus? Do you follow him for the blessings that he gives you, or do you follow him simply because he's king of kings and lord of lords? If Jesus didn't give you another favor, would you still follow him? If Jesus never answered another one of your prayers, would you still follow him? Would you follow him just because of his identity? Would you follow him just because of who he is? Would you follow him just because of the salvation that he offers? Would you follow him if from this point forward he never did you another favor? I think that in, in this moment of this story, Jesus has had it up to here that with people that were coming after him just to get something from him. So he reminds his disciples, the mission's not over. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. This woman hears this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, and then she just simply comes and falls on her knees and says, Lord, help me. That statement is far more succinct than the first one, isn't it? The first time she came in and she said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now it's just, Lord, help me. It's a three-word prayer. Have you ever gotten to that point? I mean, you're just so stressed out that you just come to Jesus and just say, Lord, help me. This is a prayer that requires faith, doesn't it? Have you ever asked yourself, where does faith come from? Does faith come from God or does faith come from humanity? And the answer is yes. Faith comes from God and faith comes from humanity. It's not an either or, it's more of a both and. There are places in the scripture where it seems to describe that faith is a gift from God. The faith that you possess, the faith that possesses you, it is a gift from God. And every day and twice on Sunday, you just need to say, thank you, Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have a home in heaven, you just need to say, Lord, thank you for the gift of faith that you have given to me. Because faith certainly is a gift from God. But faith also is your willful response to God. So, so you've got to respond in faith. This woman comes to Jesus 
And, and she possesses a faith that God has placed in her. And she possesses a faith in Jesus that rises up inside of her. And I, I believe that Jesus sometimes places faith in us. And I also believe there are other times that Jesus pulls faith out of us. I think that's what he's doing in this moment. I think that Jesus is pulling faith out of this woman. She simply comes, she kneels, she says, Lord, help me. She knows that the Lord's delay is not always a denial. You and I need to be reminded of that today. That the Lord's delay is not always denial. Just because Jesus has not answered her yet does not mean that Jesus won't answer her still. His delay does not automatically equate to denial. So she just comes once again and she says, Lord, help me. Jesus, I think, is pulling faith out of her. The faith that, that, that automatically resides within her. I think that Jesus is um, squeezing her a bit. Because when you are squeezed by Christ, when you're squeezed by culture, when you're squeezed by life, whatever's on the inside of you will come out. When you are squeezed, if there's frustration inside of you, frustration will come out. When you're squeezed, if there's anger inside of you, anger will come out. When you're squeezed, if there's fear inside of you, fear will come out. When you're squeezed, if there's faith inside of you, faith will come out. Whatever's on the inside of you will come out in moments when you are squeezed. I think that Jesus, in a very sovereign, selective way, is squeezing this woman through a Christological cold shoulder. Through telling her she's not Jewish enough. Because had she stormed out in arrogance and anger, that would reveal the lack of faith inside of her, right? But she is persistent in her plea. She continues to come to Jesus. She falls on her knees once again. Lord, help me. That is evidence to her, to the disciples, that she is a woman of faith. And Jesus is pulling that faith out of her. Whenever you're squeezed, whatever's on the inside of you will come out when I think about that, um, and I apply that to the last two years of our life together in the midst of COVID-19, this global pandemic that's affected all of us in every aspect of life, I realize that for the last two years, we've been squeezed, haven't we? We've been squeezed by COVID-19. We've been squeezed by the culture. We've been squeezed as a congregation. We've been squeezed financially. We've been squeezed as a family. We've been squeezed as individuals. And certainly Christ has permitted that. And when we get squeezed, um, what that reveals is whatever's on the inside will come out. And that is, that is revealing. And can I also say that it's embarrassing? I mean, have, have you been embarrassed by yourself over the last couple of years, how you've reacted to certain scenarios? How you've responded to things? that really are outside of your control. Now, on my best days, I respond in faith, but those are my best days. I have not so best days, don't you? I have days when I feel squeezed, I feel pressure. 
I feel the hostility. I feel it coming from every angle. And, and what comes out is frustration or anger or resentment or fear. And I ask myself, where does that come from? It comes from within me. Because whenever you're squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. I think that Jesus is testing this woman. That's why he gives her a Christological cold shoulder. That's why he pulls out the race card and says that she's not Jewish enough. And how does she respond? She comes again and she kneels, Lord, help me. Enjoying God, first and foremost, is declared through great faith that is Christ-centered. Secondly, enjoying God is demonstrated in great faith that is persistent in its plea. And third and finally, enjoying God is decided in great faith that trust Jesus regardless of the outcome. This woman does not know how this is going to end, does she? She has no promise that Jesus is going to answer her request. She does not know how this will end. Yet repeatedly, she just comes and she says to him, Lord, help me. Is that the kind of faith that you have? Will you trust him regardless of the outcome? You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know how the relationship's going to end. You don't know how the prognosis is going to go. You don't know if the healing is on the other side of the door. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the promotion is coming your way. You don't know if the brokenness will be mended. You don't know how it's going to turn out, do you? But do you trust him regardless of the outcome? Lord, help me. In response to this raw faith, you know what Jesus says? For the first time in our story, Jesus actually looks and responds to this woman. And he says, you ready for this? Jesus says, it's not right to throw the children's bread to their dogs. <laughs> oh, no. no, he didn't. No, he did not. He did not just say that. Did you hear what Jesus said? Jesus just called this woman a dog. It's not right to throw the children's bread to their dogs. Okay, first of all, he didn't answer her a word. He gave her the Christological code short. Second of all, um, Jesus... Uh, said that she wasn't Jewish enough. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And now, for the first time, he's actually talking to her, and the first thing he says to her, he calls her a name. He calls her a dog. Okay, y'all aren't offended by this. I'd be thoroughly offended. Jesus called her a dog. Now, I know the explanation. Maybe you know the explanation. Listen, there are two Greek words for dog. One describes a dog that's a mangy mutt in the street. The second Greek word describes a dog that's a domesticated animal that pretty much becomes like a member of the family. And Jesus uses the second, not the first. So some have said what Jesus is saying, he's not calling her a mangy mutt. He's calling her a domesticated poodle. He's saying, you are, this is a term of endearment, you're part of the family, what great faith you have. To which I want to say, yeah, right. I mean, Jesus, Jesus calls someone a dog. Ladies, let me ask it this way. If some man calls you a dog, does it really matter 
If in his mind he's thinking a mangy mutt or a precious little poodle. Does it really matter? The answer is no. He just called me a dog. He called me a dog. And how does this woman respond? Not in anger. Not in arrogance. Not in frustration. She doesn't fire back with any any curse words or anything like that. She just simply says, now we're talking. Finally, you're talking to me. That's all I want. I just wanted you to talk to me. Finally, we're talking. And Jesus, I can follow your analogy. In your kingdom, I am a dog. I acknowledge that. I know that I'm a dog. But at least I'm a dog at the master's table. At least I'm a dog in the master's house. I'm a dog, I'll admit. I'm a Gentile dog. I am a dog. But a dog gets the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And sometimes there are so many crumbs that fall from the table, that dog can make a mighty nice meal right under the master's feet. And that's where I want to be. I am willing to be a dog at your feet, for you are the master, you're the head of the table, you are the king of the kingdom, and so long as I'm in your house, so long as I'm at your table, I don't care if I'm a dog, at least we're getting somewhere, Jesus. Now you're talking to me. I'm a dog, and I'll just take the crumbs because your crumbs are enough for me. <laughs> now that's great faith. When you can say to Jesus, your scraps are enough for me. All I need are just a few crumbs. It's at this point that I think that Jesus cracked a smile. I have no, I have no textual evidence of it. I just kind of think to myself that Jesus says, girl, I've just been messing with you. Come on in here. You have great faith. Your request is granted. Jesus said, you have great faith. Who's he proving it to? Not himself. He knew it. He's Jesus. Who's he proving the great faith to? This woman. And who else? The disciples. Jesus is teaching them that a Gentile can have great faith. This Gentile, this Canaanite woman can have great faith. And she demonstrated that great faith. She never bailed on Jesus. She never ran out of the house. She never quit on pursuing him. She never stopped enjoying the Lord. She kept up with her faith. And Jesus, all the while, was pulling faith out of her. And she passed the test with flying colors. Even though she had a sovereign, silent treatment, even though Jesus, you know, said she wasn't Jewish enough, even though Jesus called her a name, he called her a dog. Yet she still said, I, I trust you, I believe in you. And he said, you have great faith. The word great is mega supersized, it's enormous, it's tremendous faith. In fact, it's the only thing that ever impressed Jesus. Jesus was never impressed by anything in this world except for great faith. Matthew tells us that uh, from that very hour, the little girl was healed. Before this woman could get to her house, her request had been granted. Her daughter was healed. She took her worship, she took her prayer to the only one who could handle the problem and he delivered. And in the process, he pulled faith out of her. 
You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said this is a story about enjoying God. Wouldn't it be much more enjoyable if Jesus just would have done what she asked him to at the very beginning? I mean, that's enjoyable. If Jesus does what I tell him to do, when I tell him to do it, how I tell him to do it, that's enjoyable. But remember what I said at the very beginning. In order to enjoy God, you must have great faith in God. And great faith always is Christ-centered, persistent in its plea. And great faith always trusts Christ regardless of the outcome. The very next line is verse 29. I didn't read it for you. It just simply said that um, Jesus and the disciples went on to the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) That's a short-lived retreat, isn't it? I mean, listen, if you didn't know better, you would think that the only reason Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon that day was for that woman. I mean, if you didn't know better. I mean, you know, he went for a retreat. He went to unplug. He went to get out of the, of the busyness of everyday life. He took his disciples to that quaint little house, nestled right there in Tyre and Sidon, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. He went there to have a spiritual retreat. And if you, if you didn't know better, you would think that the only reason he went was for this woman. Wait a minute. Maybe the only reason he went was for this woman. Maybe Jesus makes special trip to special places to pull faith out of special people one person at a time. Wait, wait a minute. Maybe that's why Jesus made the trip. Maybe that's why Jesus went through all that he went through with this woman. Maybe, maybe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing from the very beginning. Maybe it had nothing to do with the spiritual retreat. Maybe, maybe he knew that this woman was going to barge in and make this request. And maybe Jesus understood from the beginning of time that this moment was a divine appointment on the cosmic calendar. And he, in this very moment, was going to pull faith out of this woman. That as she felt squeezed, faith was going to just erupt from within her heart. Maybe Jesus makes it a habit to make special trips to special places. To pull faith out of special people, one person at a time. You know, we don't know anything about this woman. Only thing we know about her is her faith. And this woman had great faith. That's the only thing we know about her. We don't know her name. We don't know how old she was. We don't know anything about her financial, economic background. We don't know anything about her likes and hobbies or dislikes. We don't know anything about this woman. All we know. It's about her faith. If that's all the world knows about you, is that enough? What if nobody knows your name, but they just know about your faith? When when you're dead and gone, what if nobody can remember your name, but they can remember your great faith? I don't know who the neighbor was. I cannot remember her name. But boy, she always had great faith. I cannot remember that pastor's name. I mean, you know, he was a pastor at First Baptist Pelham. You know, First Baptist Pelham, they had that one really good pastor named Mike. And then the guy who followed him, what was his name? I can't remember his name. But he had great faith. That's what I remember. 
Do you remember the coach? Yeah, you remember that guy? And listen, he coached our daughters in softball. Do you remember? Who, who was that? What was, I don't know. What was his name? I can't remember. But he was a godly guy, wasn't he? I remember his great faith. Would it be enough, beloved, if nobody knows your name, but they just know your great faith? Because Jesus makes special trips to special places to pull faith out of special people, one person at a time. And maybe this morning, Jesus has made a special trip to this special place called the sanctuary of God. And he finds you, and you in this very moment are caught in the vortex of a squeeze. Because of something that's gone on in your life this past week, this past month, maybe several months. It's a crisis. It's a catastrophe. It's a, it's a problem. It's a, it's a bad prognosis. It's something that, that leaves you up at night, and you're struggling, and, and you feel squeezed on every side, and Jesus has come, and you've talked to him. You've asked him to take it away, and he gave you a Christological cold shoulder, and you've come to him again, and it seems as if he says, you're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. He's not going to answer your prayer. And maybe there's some here who think, you know what? I don't even know if I'm ever going to talk to Jesus again because now he's calling me names. And maybe through the entire process, Jesus is not being rude to you. He's not being mean to you. He's just pulling faith out of you. Maybe he's squeezing you to pull faith from you. He knows it's there. He's doing it so you know it's there. And so the watching world knows that it's there. He enjoys you. He believes in you. He loves you. And he's using this crisis, whatever the crisis may be, just to squeeze faith out of you. Maybe you're here today and you feel pressed on every side. And maybe Jesus is just testing your faith to prove to you that you enjoy God and that God enjoys you because you were created to enjoy the Lord, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. So enjoy God through a great faith that is Christ-centered. Enjoy God through a great faith that is persistent in its plea. Enjoy God through a great faith that trusts Jesus regardless of the outcome. And you, my fam, friend, be a person who enjoys God in all of your worship and in all of your prayer. Listen, maybe you're here today and you do feel squeezed. You just need to come here and pray. And say, God, help me. Lord, help me. Maybe it's just a three-word prayer. That's it. That's all you need. As we sing, maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you're here today and, and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and follow in believers' baptism. Maybe you're here and God is squeezing and pressuring you to come and join this church, this faith family, to be a place where you can be plopped and, and grow in your faith. Whatever it is God is urging you to do and pulling from you, won't you respond in faith unto the one who has created you? Because God enjoys the dickens out of you. He loves you more than you could ever know. And he calls you to enjoy him both now and forevermore.
Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Thanks for the story. Lord, we pray your help, and uh, we ask for you to speak and help us to respond. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.